I'm Nisha Soya, and I am Black in Appalachia. time when I didn't go to church and I went to all the churches Baptist AME Kojic Pentecostal all of those different churches with people in the neighborhood or you know at different times and so absorbed all of it and as you you know as we get older and trying to decide like well who are we going to be I saw women considered outside of the church which included my mother and my grandmother Hey podcasters, this is Nkeshi Elamine, sociologist of race and place and Black Appalachian experiences. And this is Joe T, founder and lead cultural strategist at Art at the Intersections. And, and you are listening, listening to the Black in Appalachia, Appalachia podcast. podcast. So thank you, Joti, for joining me for this episode. Yes. I really appreciate you being here. For listeners, Joti is standing in for Angela today. We wanted to do this episode with you because as a preacher's kid mm-hmm. and somebody who is thinking about church and sexuality mm-hmm. and black people and art, we couldn't think of a better person to I'm do. I'm honored. Oh, hug. <laughs> We couldn't think of a better person to bring into the episode that we wanted to to do to kick off this new year. Thinking about, you know, a reset and New Year's resolutions. Oftentimes, church comes mm-hmm. up for people, whether it be leaving the church or staying in church or going back to church. Church is something that people are thinking about at the top of the year, especially in our region. Mm-hmm. Church is a really important institution for Black Appalachians, Black folks in general, but especially in our region, we know that when Black communities disappear, the things that we often are left with are churches, right? Mm -hmm. We see churches and schools and cemeteries, but churches are definitely foundational to Black communities in Appalachia. Oftentimes, communities are so small that those three things are the only things that really Mm -hmm. belong to the community. And bring us all together across all the different dividers that now exists exactly so so this is our church episode this is our or one of them to really delve into this topic of church and black people and church and sexuality and sexuality mm-hmm. and and art and all of these things we we did this really cool interview with pittsburgh-based author disha Filia. she is the author of the new book the secret lives of the church ladies and when i say y'all we had an amazing so fun so fun conversation with her it was a pleasure but yeah so we're super super excited i'm excited when i saw that you were based in pittsburgh i was like oh she's black in appalachia yes (laughs) so so how about i didn't know that okay like i didn't connect the dots about Appalachia, like people, I, I knew pit, pit, people, uh, people called Pittsburgh the Paris of Appalachia. And so when I was invited to do something else as an Appalachian writer, I was like, yeah, but I'm from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I grew up in Atlanta, but I claim it and we're claiming you. So, okay. <laughs> so it, your stories working. are very black Appalachian, by the way. They are? They are. I felt a kinship. Like I couldn't identify people. That I grew up with yes. in East Tennessee yes. Yes. in your stories. 
fantastic. You know, we got chocolate cities everywhere, and yes. those and those stories, <laughs> yes. you know, align wherever Black folks are. Our stories align, you know, and and that's really cool. Yes, that's right. There's the roots because if it's not you, it's your grandma. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. We could just do a quick brief intro so we all know who we are and then we can jump in. I am in Keshi Alameen. I'm one of the hosts of the Black and Appalachia podcast. I'm originally from Guyana in South America, but I grew up in Atlanta and I've been in Knoxville for about seven years. When I got here, I was like, what is going on here? There's something else beneath the surface that we're not talking about. And I learned a whole lot, you know, about this region. So that's my intro. I'll shoot it over to Joe and then we'll hear from you. Born and raised Knoxvillian, have been back in my hometown for two years now after living four years in New York City going to seminary where I studied social ethics and did a lot of work in sexual ethics which a lot of people don't know Mm -hmm. which is why some of your stories like truly resonated I'm like oh you can write a whole paper on this I also run a company art at the intersections which is a consultancy and project incubator that works with communities at the intersections of art and culture spirituality and social justice and so yeah trying to just reintegrate back into my hometown and I didn't think I was Appalachian either until I was brought into some community work with some friends of mine from around central Appalachia and my mentor made me point to a map to where East Tennessee was and then I was like oh I guess I'm black and Appalachian got it yeah and so through that work starting that organization the Stay Project I begin to uncover that people who aren't talked about as being ap- black and Appalachian, like Carter G. Woodson, August Wilson, like those people are talked about yeah. a lot, but they're not put in that black Appalachian framework. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of made me take on this new proud identity. So that's me in a nutshell. So it's great to chat and with you. You too. And I want to make sure I mention an organization that you may or may not be familiar with called the Incarnation Institute for Sex and Faith. Mm. I think that if you aren't don't know about them, that like there may be some partnership things happening, but they train sex educators, therapists, and clergy around sex positive Christianity. And I just yes. did their um, level one leadership training course. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes. Look at this. Look at this. Awesome. Connections. I'm Disha Filia. I have lived in Pittsburgh since 1997. But I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. So I still, even though I've lived here in Pittsburgh longer than I lived in the South, I still identify primarily as a, as a Black Southern woman. I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, a collection of nine stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church. This is my debut fiction writing. I also wrote a book in collaboration with my ex-husband called The Co-Parenting 101, Helping Kids Thrive in Two Households After Mm -hmm. Divorce. I've written essays around parenting, sex, culture, race for places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Brevity, McSweeney's, and a bunch of other places that I'm blanking on right now. I'm 49 years old, and I like to say that just to encourage writers (laughs) that there's no clock. You mentioned that you moved to Pittsburgh back in 1997. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to Pittsburgh? The ex-husband I mentioned earlier. So um, we met at college. We went to Yale undergrad and he grew up here in Pittsburgh in the northern suburb. And we got married right after college. We were living in, we spent some time in New York. We lived in Connecticut. 
And just that pace of life was not something that was good for either of us. And we wanted to start a family and we thought we wanted should be near family when we started the family. And I really wasn't interested at that time in going to Jacksonville. So Pittsburgh was our other choice. And I'd always enjoyed visiting because he and I dated all through college. And so we would come here sometimes for spring break or for Thanksgiving break. And But, you know, at that time, didn't know that it would one day be my home. And so we relocated here in 97 and have been here ever since. You mentioned that you didn't know you didn't know about Pittsburgh as being Appalachian. Talk a little bit about like when did you realize or how did you find out or, or what is that even the Paris of Appalachia thing? Tell us yeah, a little bit more about I'm that. I'm going to embarrass myself right now. Um, so there's a book with that title. It's either a title or subtitle, The Paris of Appalachia, and it's a, a book about Pittsburgh. And I, it was probably the late 90s when I got here, or maybe even early 2000s, when that book kind of came across my radar. I didn't read it. But I just thought it was like a little clever saying. The same way that people talk about Pennsylvania as Pittsburgh, Philly, with Pennsylvania in the middle, mm. kind of speaking to the you know, it has this kind of negative negative connotation, you know, that it's not progressive, if Black folks not safe, and, you know, that idea that there's really nothing there, that, you know, that's how the whole center of the state is kind of dismissed. So I thought the Paris of Appalachia was tied to that mythology around this region. And then when my book was coming out, so this is how this is how recent it was, and I was invited to take part in a series featuring Appalachian writers, I didn't realize that was me. And I thought I was invited because my book is published by West Virginia University Press. So I thought that was connection, but when the person reached out and was talking about me as an Appalachian writer, I thought like I had to like correct her. But you know, writing, learning all the time. So, (laughs) you know, so that was a a big moment for me. And so then I was, I started to think like, well, what does that mean? What does an identity and that label mean when you didn't know, you know? And so what, and so then it it brings it into tension and into conversation with my chosen, you know, the identity, my primary identity as Southern. And then thinking about the relationship between, you know, the Southernness and this Appalachian, you know, that this, I have lived here for, at this point, almost half my life, Mm. right? And so, you know, what does it mean to be from a place? Where is home? You know, so it raises those kinds of interesting questions for me as a writer. Yeah, so I'm curious. So I've been to Pittsburgh several times and have a lot of artist friends there and one of the things that Appalachia is known for is its creativity. And so I'm curious, how has the creative community that just permeates so much of Pittsburgh, how has that influenced you as a writer? So some of my closest friends here are creative people. They are writers, they are movement artists, they are visual artists, and community is everything to me. I think the best way to say it is that it's not always a city that infrastructurally is what Black people needed to be, but just Black people in general. And so then those of us who are Black artists, as a result, you know, we're not immune to the ways that this city doesn't do right by Black people. You know, there was a recent study done um, that was commissioned here in the city by the city that found that Black people in Pittsburgh, if we picked up and moved to any other major city, instantly all of our 
outcomes would be better. Life expectancy, employment, education, everything, you name it. And so there's no way that as an artist, we're unscathed by that. But I've never been an artist anywhere else, right? Because when I was in Jacksonville, it was until I was 18 and I was not an artist at that time. So I don't know any other arts ecosystem, you know, from direct experience, but this one. And so I can say that Black artists here do what Black people here do, which is what Black people have always done, which is make our own way, which is to be more resilient than we have to be, which is to take care of each other, which is to look out for each other, which is to, you know, champion each other, which is to share opportunities with each other. We are making our art and making our way in spite of in some cases, this city. Now, that is true, you know, and, and multiple things can be true at once. There's a huge funding and foundation community here that is a great supporter of the arts. Um, but there have been times when the hoops that you have to jump through to get funding is not always equitable. And so in spite of those challenges, you know, we still make our art in spite of having systems that are not designed for us, we still make our art and make good art. And what we're overcoming, and I think it's whether you're an artist here or anything else, is the mindset that is sort of the default if we aren't unlearning and if we aren't advocating for ourselves is a scarcity mindset. I would say if I had to make a blanket statement about artists here, about Black folks here, is that when we thrive, it's because we have refused to settle for crumbs mm -hmm. or we've refused to look at crumbs and call it a whole meal that, that we want bigger and we want better. And so for me as an individual artist, I've always seen myself as an artist, you know, not contained in the city. My writing has always been national. I have written locally here, but I didn't write locally here until after I'd written nationally, you know, which is not always the way it goes. So that's kind of my relationship to the city as an artist. If what you said don't make me think of Knoxville in so right. many ways, right. I mean, like when when they say that, you know, our producer always says like, you know, Pittsburgh is closer to Knoxville than Nashville is. And I'm always like, whatever. But like. It's true. <laughs> it's, so it's so true. true. I feel like that study probably would have been done in Knoxville would have got the same results. Like take black people anywhere and they would be there automatically. They would, you know, out of Knoxville and automatically they'll be elevated or, you know, where they are. And like, so that is so strange and interesting and again just kind of shows that that connection that that black experience in this region you know that's really interesting okay so all this pittsburgh stuff out let's jump into this book i mean like so yes. joe and i were both like where do these stories come from like that is our first question yes. where do these stories okay. come from we want to know <laughs> i i grew up in the church and i grew up a very nosy child, a very curious child. And so I was always watching and, and watching women. I, you know, I grew up in a household of women. My mother and my grandmother raised me. And, um, and so my experience has always been an intergenerational one. I've always, I, I often say there's a little old lady inside me and it's my grandmother. We were raised that you were not, you were to be seen and not heard. It's not how I raise my daughters now. But at the time, what that meant was as long as you were quiet, you could hear stuff. You could hear stories. You could hear those voices. And, and so that I just absorbed all of that. And then my mother and my grandmother were not churchgoers, but they sent me to church. 
right? So there's a whole story behind that. I don't remember a time when I didn't go to church. And I went to all the churches, Baptist, AME, Kojic, Pentecostal, all of those different churches with people in the neighborhood or, you know, different times. And so absorbed all of it. And as you, you know, as we get older and trying to decide, like, well, who are we going to be and what are our options and what are are the models? And so you've got, you know, I, I saw women considered outside of the church, which included my mother and my grandmother, and then women within the church. And even within the church, there were different types of women, you know, and I would watch the the single women who, in my mind, I thought of them as peacocks because they were just so beautiful and they wore bright colors and, um, and they kind of strutted a little bit, you know, if you could strut in church. And I knew what was being preached. You know, you're not supposed to have sex, you know, without being married and all of these things. And, and I had this one idea of what, like, sex was. And then I was like, well, do women in a church have sex? Well, they must have sex because they have kids. Do they like it? Do they masturbate? So, you know, these are the kinds of things that, as a young person, I found very fascinating, very curious as I was trying to sort out who I was going to be. And so then fast forward, when I got that first urge and impulse to write fiction, it was autobiographical in the sense that I was writing about my own experiences, but I didn't want to write like memoir or I didn't, you know, I was still kind of feeling like I had my own secrets. And so I would kind of fictionalize it and my dissatisfaction in my own life, I gave it to the characters, right? Mm -hmm. And they were women who were in the church. I had a couple of attempts at novels and kind of playing with this idea of discontented Black Southern churchy women. And one of the books really took hold. And over the years, I've written like the beginning and I've written the end. And then it's like that middle part that I got stuck on. But I didn't notice that that was the theme. Like it was just you know, I'm reflecting on it now because I get asked this question. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was just writing what occurred to me to write, what was in my imagination, what I was kind of curious about, and maybe kind of working out my own stuff. But when I stalled on the novel a few years back, I had been writing these short stories and being asked to read in different places locally. And my agent is here in Pittsburgh as well. And so she would come to my readings. And so after like the second one, she said, you know, I really like these church lady stories. And since you're not working on the novel right now, you're taking a little break from that. What if you put together a collection of these stories? That felt more possible than finishing that novel. And I hadn't thought of them as church lady stories, but she saw that through line. And so I thought, well, what if I got really intentional and actually made a whole collection that was about Black women, sex, and the Black church? And not all the characters are church ladies per se, meaning they're, they don't, you know, as you know from reading the book, they don't all go to church, but they are what I call church lady adjacent. Someone in their life is a church lady, someone who is very influential. And so that's how the idea for the collection took shape. One thing that I took away from this was that the church kind of permeates a lot in our culture. So even if you're not an actively church-going person, it's like I was able to see, ooh, you know, the way that they talked about this, I'm like, ooh, that that's very churchy, church thinking, like even though, and so I'm curious, was that an intentional thing to show kind of how church culture, church ideology kind of permeates all of these things and 
how we have to kind of wade through it at times to get to what we truly believe and what feels right for us. Yeah, so I, I wanted to build on that kernel of dissatisfaction. And often the root of our dissatisfaction is that tension, that tug of war between who we want to be, what feels right, what our longings are, versus what someone else has told us we should want, think, need, feel, mm-hmm. do. And for so many of us, that some that entity is the church, even if you're, you know, maybe a couple generations removed, or even if you've never been involved in the church. Like our whole notion around purity, all of the binaries mm-hmm. that are forced onto us. You could be an atheist, but you're still told you're either male or female. You're either straight or gay. And so the church has been one of the biggest sources of those binaries. And it's enacted on all of us. And we all kind of have these moments. It can be multiple moments of a lifetime of moments of unlearning or unpacking or rejecting or reclaiming or deciding for ourselves. And so I wanted to write a collection of stories about women and girls who are somewhere in process of that learning and unlearning, rejecting, and the fallout. Because it's not just like, oh, I got free. Because freedom never comes, (laughs) you know, without a cost. What does it cost to get free? And how do we navigate that? All of our questions, you're definitely touching on them, like even before we ask them, which is great. Because one of the things we want, we talked about was whether or not the women know how church is working in this way in their lives. And so, like, I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about this, like, this concept of freedom, like, and getting free. And I feel like I've been playing around with that a lot just in my own writing, but also in what we're seeing taking place on a national level with Black folks. I feel like there's been some pivoting of freedom or we get to freedom and then we have to realize that we have to reimagine freedom again because what we thought freedom was, it's not. And even like escapes as a form of freedom, right? So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So I'll take your first question, which Mm -hmm. was about the women, the characters' awareness of, you know, these forces. And each story, I think there are different levels and, and different ways that they engage those forces and articulate it or not. I think one of the clearest ways, or one of the stories where it's very clearly articulated, sorry, that's my dog, that's right. <laughs> is in Eula. And they actually, the two characters in that book actually talk about scripture, they talk about dogma, they talk about, you know, theology and competing interpretations and and that sort of thing. So I think that's the story where it's the most explicit. Mm -hmm. But then in most of the other stories, you know, there's no one really saying like, I'm going to rebel against the church. You know, I try not to be that heavy handed because we don't live heavy handed lives. Like Mm. all of this happens very organically, very subtly. Like we absorb it. It's through osmosis. And so I think for the characters and the stories, you know, we want them to, I want them to, to be real people. And that's how real people process these things sometimes without a full awareness. And so I think it, you know, it, it, it showed up for different characters in different ways. I wanted a subtlety, about that and so you have a character like Gile who says and this is one of my favorite lines in in the collection can you suck dick and still be saved right <laughs> like come on you know people, if you were raised in the church you? and then that's something you want to do you might be thinking about that right right so, 
she's not having some deep theological discussion, but she really is. Right, yep. <laughs> right, know? right. She yep. Really is. But at a, in a way that's age appropriate and in a way that's true to how we usually grapple with these things. But the kinds of stories I wanted to tell was one where she asked the question and grapples with the question, but not one that was like just about her saying she's going to buck these trends and whatever. Gile is probably the bravest character of all the characters in all of the stories. And she's 14 years old and she doesn't have a self-consciousness about it. She is just like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I just need everybody to just stay out of, get out of my way. She's not, woe is me. Am I going to go to hell? Am I, you know, it's like, because she asked that question and she goes, not that I really care, but, you know, because, you know, she's curious. And it's like her, and that's something that if you were raised in a very, under a very strict religious teachings, curiosity is not encouraged. Mm -mm. And so I wanted her, that part of her bravery was to dare to be curious about things. And so I think when, when you approach it that way, I think it's richer than you know, than confronting you know the theology kind of kind of head on, and I don't find that as interesting. You know, there's so many nuances there, and I think that storytelling is a more effective way of getting at some of these things. Yeah, we definitely sense the subtleness. I think that we both that kind of word. said it. Yeah, that was, that the, was word the word that we used. It was, and it was like, like the word. These like, stories so are subtle, good, but it's like, but it's not slapping you in the face. It's not beating you up. It's not. It's just like. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we we did kind of, like you know like you can relate to this stuff. Like I did one, you know, we did have those conversations or wondered about this thing or or whatever. I love that about it, and and it makes me think like, man, I want to share this book with my mom, but like I don't know my mom, you know, I don't know if she's ready to receive not re- my mama. receive it. <laughs> not my not my preacher mama. My mom is a church lady. I don't think when I was a kid she was a church lady. At least I didn't see her that way. She might have thought that she was, but I didn't see her that way. Sort of like how you said they would send you to church. I felt like my mom sent me to church. She didn't always go. But she's become a church lady in her older years now. But I really want her to really think critically about church and like like engage with like the complexity of people's lives so i want her to read the book but i'm but i know that she's like she puts up blocks to everything like sex what not reading about sex no can't do that well one thing that you might find helpful um if you go to my instagram account there's like link in the bio and there are two book club kits Mm -hmm. and there's one that's for church groups and so both of them have a basic list of questions for each story, for the collection as a whole. And then the church one has an additional set of questions for church folks. And so, you know, maybe read through it, pick one story, maybe maybe not the one where it talks about, you know, story. <laughs> <laughs> You know? Yeah. And then look at and, and engage her with some of those questions. Yeah. As a conversation. I'll try. I'll give it a shot. Have, have you shared? I'm sure your mom read the book and how does she feel about it? My mom passed away in okay. 2005. I'm sorry. But what's interesting, no, I'm glad you asked that question because as a, as a lot of writers, like you worry what your mother is going to say. You worry what your father or anybody, you know, um, for me it extends because both of my parents are deceased, but my mom's best friends are still around okay they're still my facebook friends and they are big supporters my uncle's girlfriend when i was little like they're not even together but she's still in my corner and she read the book so these are people in their late 60s in their 70s 
there was definitely a pause for me of like, oh my gosh, like they still think I'm 12. <laughs> so when they read that I've been writing this stuff, <laughs> you know, suddenly I'm 12 again. And they have been nothing but supportive. Absolutely nothing. And, they, and they're not just saying like, oh baby, that's great. You wrote the book. They actually read the book and still are supportive. And that just means everything to me. And I think my mother would have been as well. Okay. Now she might've felt a little self-conscious because Mothers don't come out looking great in all of these stories. And so, you know, I couldn't fault her if she would have been like, well, what are you trying to say? You know, she might have taken it a little bit personally. But there's no one mother character that is my mother. I will say that. There are elements of my mother in some of those mother characters. But it's not like, you know, this was my story with my mom or anything like that. So I'd like to think that, you know, she would be happy about it. And really, and she was always proud of me, no matter what. I mean, we had our clashes, but she was always proud of me. So I imagine she would still be. So I'm curious. So the theme of desire, because I'm interested now in like this whole church book club kit. Have you ever heard from like people who have gone through that? Because one of the, I call it my second Bible is Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. And yeah. while reading through the book, I thought immediately of uses of the erotic. Of the erotic. And that yeah. line that Audre Lorde has where she says, most people fear the yes within themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, now knowing that there's like a church book club kit for this, like have you talked to anybody maybe that have used it or any people in your life that are hardcore church people? What has their reaction been? And I'd also love just to know just, your general thinking on the yes within and how that is supported or not by what okay. you've seen in the church. So that's like a million questions, okay. but as you were asking the first part of the question, I thought about a couple of people. I have friends who are pastors who love the book to my knowledge. They haven't engaged the book club kit, but I wrote that kit at the urging of one of my pastor friends, because she said, you know, I want other pastors to be able to engage with this. And so if there's some questions that are specifically for church folks, you know, that's a way that we can connect with them. And then I was, uh, my official book launch event was hosted by Pittsburgh Arts and Lectures. And I was in conversation with Dr. Kirsten Scott from the University of Pittsburgh. And in addition to being a scholar, she's a church girl, she's a church lady. And so it was great to talk with her about how she engaged, you know, some of these ideas. I think it's almost a little self-selecting in the sense that if you are inclined, I think, to read this book, when you read the description, if you can get past Eula, the first story, Mm -hmm. then you're, you know, then I think it's like, those are the people who are going to read the book. I think anybody who wouldn't be inclined wouldn't like it, but then they also wouldn't read it, you know? So I think I, I realize that I'm it's sort of a, what is it, confirmation bias, mm-hmm, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm hearing all these positive things, including from people in the church. But I think that it shows us that the people in the church, the church is not a monolith. Right. Yes. You know? And so, you know, my book really grapples with the most repressive, oppressive, small version of church that's real for some people but i recognize that that's not what church is for a lot of people and thankfully Mm -hmm. it's not for them about the yes within again the character eula comes to mind right and i believe even eula has that yes but i think she drowns it out i think Mm. she unplugs you know 
a one analogy that just came to mind is like, you know how if your refrigerator has that alarm, if you leave the door open, mm-hmm. it just starts to beep and then maybe you need to leave it open for a while. So you turn the alarm off. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's something there that's trying to let you know that yes, within that something's missing or it's, it's encouraging you to seek and to be curious and to invite in. And I think eulogists, as, as a lot of us, they just sort of short circuited that. You know, the things that would, her body's craving, she talks about that. She's like, have you ever just felt like you could just bust? Like that feeling, that's her yes, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, so, but she will only entertain that yes once a year. (laughs) You know? Right. It's like, these are the mental games that we play. But I think we all have that in us. It's just, how do we listen to it? How do we drown it out? Are we encouraged, you know, as, as we're raising our kids? What if we told our kids, there's that yes inside of you? Like, what if that was part of how we nurtured girls? I feel like there's so much, so many parts that I want to get, get into as far as like the themes in the book. One thing that I saw a lot was like teachers. Several characters were teachers. Was that intentional? Is there that relationship between teachers or schools and the church and how that comes up in the book? Can you talk a little bit about that? I never noticed that. Oh. You just <laughs> okay. So, Eula and Carolina are teachers. Lyra is a teacher. Yes. Gosh, I had not thought about that. Let me think if I can say something real clever real quick. You know, one thing I will say, <laughs> um, if we think about in our communities, for a long time, teaching was one of the few professions that Black people weren't shut out of. Right. And so it was, you know, we revered the teachers in our communities. And I remember when I went away to college and I came from a neighborhood where nobody went to college. And not only did I go to college, I went to Yale. And so people in my community knew about me. And so I had, I think it was my freshman year, I'd gone away and then I came home for Christmas and a teacher who had long retired, I mean, he was probably in his 80s or 90s at that point, he lived on the next street over and he had died. And when his family came to clean out his house, he had a whole library of books, classic, a lot of classic books. And somebody, and we weren't friends with this man's family, but somebody told his family that there's this girl around the corner who goes to college. And they just took those books and brought them to my house. Wow. You know? Mm. And so this, you know, so this idea of education, you know, we had that sort of reverence. But then when I told my mother that after I graduated undergrad, that I was going back to school to get my master's in teaching because I wanted to be a teacher. She said, and then you're going to become a principal. And that just reflects how our mindset changed from teachers being so revered to this idea that, you know, teaching is what you do when you can't do anything else, which is just simply not true. Mm -hmm. So I am a teacher. I have a master's in teaching. I guess, yeah, they they showed up, but that was not a conscious decision. So thank you for noticing (laughs) that and not... Connected those dots well, I definitely um, my husband is a teacher and and I teach I guess college level. So you're you're teaching as well, or are you are you no, practicing? I, I, I taught elementary school in Connecticut before I moved to Pittsburgh. Gotcha. And so since then, all of my teaching has been you know teaching like writing workshops and things like that. But I never taught elementary school again. But you know I missed the classroom. My those two years that I taught in Connecticut, my students are now. Gosh, they're in their 30s. They've gone through graduate school and all yeah. of that. And some of them are still my Facebook are, are my Facebook friends now and still in touch. 
but I do, I, te- I do teach writing on occasion, but not on a, uh, you know, I don't teach on a university faculty or anything like that. I love that the characters are of different generations, right? And I also, I don't know if it's just me or Joe, I don't know if you felt the same way, but like, I wanted to connect them. Like, I wanted to, like, where somebody's story left off, some, the other person picked up, but like, they're related or they... I don't know, this is the other side of this. I don't know. I wanted to connect them somehow. And yeah. also, they're all so relatable. Like, I could think of when I read the the one about the sisters, like, I imagined me and my sisters and our dad. And I have a dad that had five children with three different women. And so, like, I, he wasn't a deadbeat, but, like, <laughs> exactly. Like, but I imagine, like, you know, we all lived with him and everything. But I imagine, but we have that weird, we have some strange relationships and and so like I could see all of that and then like the which is one the snow what is it snowfall snowfall I have a friend who I feel like that's her story or or most of it is her or parts of it is her story so I could see like people in all of these stories the characters are so relatable and I really love that about this book yeah Joti you have any more pressing before we move on to some fun things I'm ready for the fun (laughs) Cause I can talk, I can talk the ethics and theology in these stories all day, but we'll save that for another day. (laughs) These stories are fun. I love them. I love, love them. I want to like yell and tell everybody to get the book and read it. Mm -hmm. It's really good. So we're all happy and proud and all of the things with you and for you. We have a few, just like two little games to try to, yay. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. I felt like. I thought you would you would vibe with this. So good. So we want to do a never ever was it never have I ever, right? And we're going to do this the church version. So grab some water. Some holiness. Is your water? You got some water? Okay. I have we, I have mine. We're going to drink some water. <laughs> here we go. We normally might do moonshine around here, but we'll do water or, today. Or or a good or a good bourbon whiskey. Yes. So we're going to start, we're going to keep it a little light first and might, might kick it up a notch. Um, okay. So the first one is never have, never have I ever been deliberately late to church. So in this game, if you, if the statement is true for you, you drink the water. Is that yep. how this works? Yeah. Okay. This is like a modified never oh, have I ever. Never have I ever. Okay. Sorry. Have I'm you done? Like, how, how does this thing work? Look. So it works. So generally, okay. you're supposed to say things that you have not done. Uh, but being the PK that I am, I've you've done, done it all. Some of these, <laughs> okay, a well, lot of these. Help me out. So you guys drank. So that means that you have. I have. I have done it. I have done. I've definitely been deliberately okay, late so to church. I got it. Then. So I did not drink because I've never been deliberately late for church. Okay. Right. All right. You were trying to go get okay, them stories. <laughs> Okay. Never have I. Okay, you want to go? Yeah, yeah. You next never time. have I ever slept in church. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Still do. <laughs> Whenever I go. Never have I ever laughed at or mocked someone while they were catching the Holy Ghost in church. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry. I've done all these things. I, I, saw, I saw, Disha, I saw the flashback. It's like you. I can see you seeing a story it all there. over again. Shame of it is, I was married with children <laughs> when you were doing this. Oh my god! Yes. All right. Let's see. Gone to church, hung over. Get you, Joe. Joe. 
And I re- I had them college days when, you know, when I was going to church and I would do the club thing on Saturday night and like got up and, and went to church on Sunday morning, but I didn't do it hangover. See, I, I mean, <laughs> the thing was, if we went out, we were expected to show up. Right. Yeah, the only way you could go out is if you made sure you were in church the next morning. Yeah. Yes. And being, I'm, and being I'm a, PK, a PK, I'm sure you know I'm, that. I'm yeah. such a PK. So that's why I'm just like, yeah. I'm glad that they'll be listening and not can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of drinking going on here. Let's see. Cuss somebody out in church. I, I have Cheers. Not, I have not done that. Cheers. I have not, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna have any water. I think it's the I think it's the whole I mean, PK okay, thing. So we got a spare bottle. So, so for that particular one, it was around like queerness in the church. Like when I stepped into my freedom, okay, a whole bunch of people just needed to be told about themselves. All right, and I'm here for telling people about themselves. You know, the truth will set them free. <laughs> That's right. Look at yourself before you look at there me. You go. All right, what secrets you got going on? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see. Your turn. Um, this one is the wild one. Played a drinking game in church. So I am not drinking. I'm people. not drinking today. I'm not drinking no, no. today. <laughs> um, let's go. Let's see. Attempted to fight somebody in church. Also, I have not fought, fought anybody in my life. So. Me neither. I don't even try. It's not my thing. Not my thing. I don't. I don't think I have either. So mm-hmm. okay. All right. All I'm, right. I'm saving, I'm row, saving some water. Row, okay. Saving some water. I see you. I see you over there. Okay. Your turn. Leaving church to go watch TV. I remember when I was in when I was in Atlanta. We used to go to church. Like the pastor would have like folks would be like on him about like. They had, like, this traffic light thing going on because, like, on football days, it was like, dude, wrap it up. We got to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've not I've not left church to watch TV. I've definitely. So I have a sister that's seven years older. And so we used to kind of, the younger church kids would tag along with the older church kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we've crashed some parties of theirs that they left church to go have. Yeah, yeah. But not necessarily for TV. For TV, yeah. Okay. Let's see. This one is made out in church. I'm sure there's some PKs around there making out in church. The PK in here is drinking more than anybody else. (laughs) Because that's what they do. (laughs) I'm just going to say. I truly, you know, well, I don't know if you guys heard, but I was told, like, God would strike you down with lightning. And so I would never act out in church. Oh, that's, that's nice. so traumatic. That's nice. <laughs> I was so literal. I was so literal. I really believe that, like, that's what lightning was. So, like, when you when you say that, <laughs> it brings me back to like Pastor Neely being God. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like who, was, they have who did the you think was God? Like, <laughs> did you have a God pastor? Somebody again, not my family member, but somebody sent me on a Kojic conference. So everybody got on like a chartered bus, like a Greyhound type bus. And and I was little and I was like bouncing around and I hit the hat. The, the man is sitting in front of me was wearing his hat, which he probably should have had taken should have taken it off. And I knocked his hat off. Uh-oh. And there was this collective gasp <gasps> from the Kojiks because he was the bishop, the 
head poobah, whatever. Oh my goodness. And I had knocked his hat, hat off. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow, you know? And it was like, then I was shunned. No, we won't shun you. Here. Not at all. Not at all. So, I got my revenge and I wrote the secret lies of truth. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So the last one, never have I ever taken money out of the offering box. I have not. But I know some folks, y'all. I mean, I think I may have when I was like really, really young and didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna drink to that. Drink to that. Drink to that. You gotta finish this thing out strong. <laughs> y'all edit this part. I can't say that it's the best interview I've had. <laughs> <Yeah>! Score! <laughs> awesome sauce. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. That was a blast. We had a we had an amazing time. So much fun. And the funnest interview she's had. So it was good. It was good. So Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Like thanks for agreeing it to was do fun. this episode with us. I absolutely enjoyed it. All of it. Enjoy chatting with you and getting to know you better. Enjoy um Disha and her book. Oh my god, her amazing so book, amazing. y'all. If you haven't read the book, if you don't know about it, look it up. Buy it for somebody. All the churchy people All in your All the churchy people. They they need to be challenged. Yes. It's challenged. A, it's them. a wonderful book, and it's subtle. So check it out. And thanks again. We about to be out, y'all. This is our last episode of this season. But, Joe, before you leave, we always want to share with our listeners a little bit about what's going on in our lives, what we're listening to, what we're reading, what, you know, anything exciting like that that you want to share. Are you reading anything special, or what do you, what do you got going on? Yeah, I have been really vibing with the poetry of Denez Smith. So already in this new year, I've read two of their books of poetry, Mm. Homie and Black Movie. And given the moment that we're in, y'all should read them. Okay. They're really good. Okay. What are you reading or listening to in Keshi? Okay, so I'm not reading anything right now, but I have been listening to a new station on Pandora. Yes, I still listen to Pandora, but I've been listening to Dorothy Ashby, who is an Afro harp player. The best music. It gives you so many feelings. Check that out. Yeah, like it's like jazz, Afro beats, Afro Caribbean. Hmm. And the harp. Yeah, it's it's really good. I've been doing a lot of writing lately, and so whenever I'm writing, I don't want to hear lyrics. So this mm-hmm. is really good for that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, as we get out of here, we want to make sure that we give a shout-out to our podcast team, Mr. Chris Smith, our producer, James Baines on the audio, Angela Dennis, our co-host. Gosh, who's that other guy? William Isom, <laughs> the director of Black and Appalachia. The director of Black and Appalachia. It has been a wonderful season a wonderful half a year coming to you all through this podcast. We're going to take a little bit of a break, but we will be back with some good stuff. New stuff, good stuff. Can't tell you all right now, but stay tuned and follow us on the socials. We are Black and Appalachia. Subscribe. Subscribe. Please subscribe. Subscribe and share the podcast with somebody. Tell somebody about this podcast. Don't just send it to them. Tell them about it. We're Black and Appalachia on the socials. That's Black and Appalachia on Instagram and Facebook. And you can send us emails at podcast at blackandappalachia.org. All right, y'all. Happy New Year, y'all. Happy New Year. Bye-bye.